This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Amara, Joanna, Emmeline, Sam VR, and Susanna. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's get started. We begin with a couple of serious questions, and these two questions are related to one another. They come from Amara and Joanna, and I'm going to give you both questions up front so that you'll see how they're connected. First, Amara asks, what's your favorite sermon that you have preached? And then Joanna asks, what is your favorite sermon series so far? So let me answer those questions one by one. So first, Amara's question, what is your favorite sermon that you have preached? Now, obviously, as I've said many times before, when it comes to deciding on a single favorite, that is really, really hard. But here's what I did. I went back over a list of all the sermons that I have preached over the years. And what I found was the ones that I like the most, I like the most not so much because of the sermon, but because of the text that the sermon was about. So there are several sermons that I could mention here, but I actually managed to single it down to just one sermon. Now, this is a sermon that I preached on October the 2nd, 2016. It was based on a text from the book of Hebrews, and it is called, Our God is a Consuming Fire. In fact, this was the third sermon in a series called A Consuming Fire, the all-demanding God of Hebrews 12 and 13. And it's based on that passage where Mount Sinai, and Mount Zion are contrasted in the sort of uh, ominous tones where Mount Sinai, where the law was given, is described or contrasted with the grace and the beauty of Mount Zion. And of all the sermons that I've preached, I think that's got to be my favorite, not because it was the best sermon, but because that text is so incredible, so worthy of meditation. In fact, I would recommend the entire sermon series on the book of Hebrews, which is an incredible, incredible book. Now for Joanna's question, what is your favorite sermon series? Now, based on what I just said, it would be easy to say, oh, just go back to the sermon series that I preach on the book of Hebrews. It was actually several different sermon series. But as I reflected and I went back over the, the list of different sermon series that I've preached, I actually have a different favorite that I'm going to recommend. Now, this is a sermon series that I preached in the fall of 2018, so two years after that series on Hebrews. Now, this one was based on Luke's Gospel, chapters 14 and 15, and the name of the sermon series was Eating with Jesus, Creating a Culture of Grace. Now, in that sermon series, we looked at parables that Jesus told in those chapters in Luke, and we saw the way that those parables give us uh, an understanding of how to build a culture of grace. In other words, not just to have a theology of grace, 
but actually to live in community in ways that are gracious, to, to live the way that our theology calls us to live. Now, there are a lot of other sermon series that I could point to. Uh, I'd like to think that every sermon series at Grace is worth going back to, just as every sermon is. But if you're looking for kind of my idea right now of what my favorites are, those two, the sermon, Our God is a Consuming Fire, and the sermon series, Eating with Jesus, would be my answers. And now it's time for the big question. This week, our big question comes from Emmeline, and she asks this, How will God save everyone, like it says in the New Testament, if he also crushes all his enemies, like it says in the Old Testament? Well, Emmeline, this is a complicated question, and so my answer is going to be about as big an answer as this question is a big question. I'm going to oversimplify and I'll go pretty fast, but hopefully I'll give you a a good grounding in the right way to think about this question. So first of all, let me point out one thing. It's not just the Old Testament that says that God will defeat his enemies. The New Testament says this as well. In fact, it's in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, for example, that we get the prophetic picture of this final struggle. So... There really isn't a division or a contradiction between the Old Testament picture of that final justice and the New Testament picture of that final justice. That's why when we come to the end of the book of Zechariah, as we just did recently, it sounds a lot like the end of the book of Revelation, because they are speaking the same message, even though in the New Testament it's a little fuller, it's more filled in. So there's another thing I want to push back on. The New Testament doesn't actually teach that God will save everyone. So we need to look at what the New Testament actually does teach. And that can be a little bit confusing. So let's take a look at two verses in particular that I think kind of sum up the the, the tension when it comes to answering this question. So the first one is at the beginning of the book of Matthew, in Matthew 1, 21, a text that I actually preached on this morning. It reads, this is the angel speaking about Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus is called Jesus because he will save his people, from their sins. That's one text. The second one is 1 John chapter 4. This is verse 14. The Apostle John writes, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So the question is, who's right? Who is right? Is Matthew right or John? Did Jesus come to save his people the way that Matthew says? Or was Jesus sent the way John says to save the world? When people puzzle over this question, they sum up those two different options, those two ideas with these terms. Uh, Particularism, which is the idea that Jesus came to save his own people, versus universalism 
which is the idea that Jesus came to save each and every person. So save his own people, that's particularism. Save each and every person, that's universalism. Now we know that universalism, understood literally, is not the right answer because it's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that only those who repent of their sins and believe on Jesus will be saved. So we know that in the end, each and every person is not ultimately saved. So if that's the case, does that mean that John is wrong, that Jesus is not the Savior of the world? What do we do with that? Well, some people argue this way. They say, well, Jesus wanted to be the Savior of the world, and he did everything that he could possibly do in order to save the world, but some people rejected him anyway, and so he didn't actually succeed in saving the world, only in saving his people. So he wanted to be the Savior of the world, and he really tried to be the Savior of the world, but ultimately it just didn't work out that way. The fancy term for this view is hypothetical universalism. In other words, hypothetically, in theory, Jesus tried to save each and every person. He did everything he could for each and every person equally, but ultimately that just didn't work because it was up to the individuals to choose him, and not everybody did. There is a problem with this line of thinking, though. The problem is that John doesn't say Jesus tried to save the world but couldn't. He says Jesus is the Savior of the world. The Bible doesn't speak of Jesus' salvation of the world in hypothetical terms. It speaks of it in, in very definite terms. So if Jesus really is the Savior of the world, and yet not each and every person in the world is saved, then how do we understand what the Bible means when it says that Jesus saves the world? Well, here's the thing. There is no contradiction between Matthew and John. We don't have to choose one or the other. In fact, we, we shouldn't choose one or the other. We should take both of them to be saying something that is true. Jesus came to save his people from their sins, as Matthew says, and Jesus is the Savior of the world, as John says. In the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, teach that Jesus saves the world by saving his people from their sins. Think about it this way. In the Old Testament, God often works things out historically in order to reveal what it is he's going to do spiritually later on. So, in the Old Testament, we see God saving the human race from destruction in the days of Noah. But he does this by saving Noah and his family from the flood. And because he saves Noah and his family from the flood, the Bible celebrates God as having saved the world, having saved humanity. Again, in the Old Testament, God saved Israel from Egyptian bondage, and he led them into the promised land, even though not every single person made it into the land. And yet, looking back on that deliverance, the Bible celebrates God as having saved, delivered Israel. Now, 
as I said, these historical events become pictures of the deliverance that Jesus achieves when he comes into the world. And so in the same way that God saved his people from the flood and saved his people from Egyptian bondage and at the same time saved the world by saving his people, we see Jesus saving the world by saving his people from their sin. The great Presbyterian theologian B.B. Warfield had a term for this. He called this biblical universalism, understanding the Bible's universalist language in a biblical way. And I think that's always important to do because all too often what we do when we're faced with a challenge, how to reconcile one thing the Bible says with the other, we feel like we've been called to choose which one to believe. But in fact, when the Bible apparently has these tensions between what it teaches, what we've been called to do is to accept both of those things, to explain how they go together if we can, but even if we can't, to receive them and to believe in them. I know we've covered a lot of ground, but I hope that that answer is helpful as you think about this apparent tension, but not actual tension in the way the Bible speaks of salvation. Before we wrap things up, let's answer a couple of fun questions. Our first fun question comes from Sam VR. He asks, can we have a race on the track with the whole church? Well, I'm sure you already know that when you're in Grace's Sanctuary, if you glance out the windows, you can see in the Sunday morning sunlight a big racetrack. Uh, Not a racetrack for cars, of course, but a racetrack for, for people, for running, for running track. And during the week, if you're down at the church, you'll often see people practicing there or racing there in order to work on their running, their athletics. Now, Sam's question actually does fill me with a lot of joy because when I imagine getting everybody at church to line up on the starting line and shooting the gun and having everybody race around the track, I think that would actually be hilarious to see. It would be fun not just to see who won the race, but to see what happened along the way, who ran into who, who got trampled, uh, who screamed, who sat down on the, the edge and decided that they couldn't even continue any longer. I think that would all be really, really fun. And, and we should do it sometime. But there is a practical problem with this idea, which is we've never been able to get everybody in the church together in one place at one time in our whole history. So there is no way, Sam, literally, that we could get everyone, the whole church, on the track at the same time. But uh, maybe we could get a few and see how that goes. And our final question comes from Susanna, and she wants to know, why do you say strength wrong? It's okay. I just want to know why. Well, Susanna, you know, I'm a little bit self-conscious about the way I pronounce words because a lot of people have pointed out that when I say strength, it doesn't sound right. Um, The way most people say that word, it sounds like this, strength. 
But to me, that doesn't sound right. Strength sounds wrong uh, because it, it, it sounds like ink, like it, it rhymes with ink, which is spelled with an I, but strength isn't spelled with an I, it's spelled with an E. And so when I say strength, uh, to me, like I say it the way I would say wrench. So strength, wrench, like that. Saying strength sounds like what I'm saying is, is, is a word with an I in it instead of an E. So I do the same thing with length. I don't say length. I say length, uh, but I know that that's not right because everyone keeps telling me. And so I've been making an effort whenever I have to say those words in my mind, I put an I in place of the E and I say strength and length so that you know what it is that I'm trying to say, but I don't do it consistently. And for that, I apologize. I'm working on it. I'll try to do better, but uh, you know what? We all have our little difficulties, and that just happens to be one of mine. But thanks for asking. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.